This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book Drugs and Jesus by Josh Lawson. It's no secret that churches are stumbling in the dark when they look for ways to effectively serve people who use drugs. As the death toll of accidental drug overdose continues to rise across our country at an alarming rate, Christians are struggling to connect their faith with this urgent and holy work. Faith-based activists are attempting to bridge the gap, but so far, their message has been confined to socially progressive circles. Drugs and Jesus is the first book of its kind to pioneer a theological framework for people of faith, and especially evangelical Christians, to help them engage in the ministry of harm reduction. Drawing from my own groundbreaking efforts to equip faith communities at the epicenter of America's rural opioid crisis, Drugs and Jesus takes readers on a journey of theological and practical transformation that will help them learn how to better serve the most vulnerable members of their community, all without having to become experts in the field of addiction or theology. Drugs and Jesus releases from Choir Publishing on April the 11th. Don't miss it. Hey, this is Lacey Bean, co-host of Deadly Faith Podcast and social media influencer. But anyways, blah, blah, blah. Shut up, sit down, and listen to Second Cup with Keith. Hey, um, hello there, and welcome back to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles, and uh, we are continuing our series in biblical marriage. So if you um, didn't listen to the previous episode, you might want to go back because uh, we're going to be going through this rather lengthy and involved topic of biblical marriage uh, together as we go through the uh, the podcast, probably over the next three or four, who knows, maybe more episodes. I don't exactly know. We'll see how far we get Um with each episode, how much we can cover. But um, yeah, so in this episode, you can tell by the title, um, I want to talk a little bit about and expand a little bit on um, a topic that, again, I covered this when I did the debate with James White in Houston. Um, now, I'll admit during the debate, he was asking me for references and you know all this kind of stuff, and I didn't have it uh, on me at the time. So I did write a blog post about this later to go into more detail. and. Um, and hopefully we can go in a little more detail as well here in the podcast. So um, this uh, the, the thing that I brought up in the debate and that I want to talk about in this episode um, is the fact that if we're going to talk about biblical marriage, um, we have to, you know, take into account, um, you know, the Torah, uh, the Talmud, the Mishnahs, um, the Mishnahs are... Um, collections of um, basically, you know, law codes and and uh, commentaries um, from uh, Jewish rabbis and things like that. So, um, you know, in, in other words, these are the people who were uh, not only living by the law, living by the the old covenant scriptures, what we call the old covenant scriptures, right? To them, it was just it was their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Um, to them, it was just the scripture. Um, and so during that time, right, during that time period, um, when the books of the Hebrew scriptures were being written and were being taught, um, they were also being debated and discussed and studied by rabbis. And then this is where we get, you know, rabbinic tradition, and we get the Mishnahs and things like this. And so um, I think the reason why I think it's important for us to take into account that those those uh, what we would call extra biblical sort of commentaries is the fact that we need to acknowledge as as Christians 
that the 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 Hebrew scriptures, what we call again the the first covenant or the old covenant scriptures, um, they're not ours, right? These are the writings, the histories, the traditions, the teachings, the theology of a completely different group of people. They're not Americans. Um, you know, the, these are pre-Christian people, um, and they had a certain way of of thinking about the world and the universe and reality and theology. And this is what we have recorded, collected in the prophets, um, the law and the prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, uh, the, the poetry and things like that, uh, uh, Psalms and Ecclesiastes and and those things. So all that, this whole collection that we call the Old Testament or that Jewish people call their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, um, they belong to the Jewish people. And so what they say about their own writings has weight. It matters. And the kinds of things recorded in those scriptures by those people um, is a reflection of their culture at the time, or at least at the time those different books, those different um, things were written down. Now, we know they were written down over a long period of time by a variety of different people from many different backgrounds. We've talked about many times on this podcast that um, those authors of those books in both the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Covenant scriptures um, do not agree. They don't all agree. They disagree. They argue. They debate. They have different views. They contradict one another. Um, and this is just part of being honest about the Bible and being honest about what we what we are looking at when we're reading the Bible and studying the Bible. So in that spirit, um, I'm going to look at some ancient Jewish sources and what they thought about sort of basically human sexuality. Okay. And why are we going to look at human sexuality? Well, because um, it it greatly uh, has a bearing on the conversation about relationships between, you know, people, between men and women or between you know, men and men and women and women. And we're going to get much deeper into that as we go into this series. Just for the purpose of this podcast, um, I want to talk about how the Talmud and other ancient Jewish sources spoke about gender. And if there's time at the end, uh, I may also you know, look into what, uh, how that correlates with um, biological science. But if we just start with these, um, with the, the 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 Talmud and other ancient Jewish uh, sources, um, here's what we'll what we'll find. Now, the Mishnah, the Jewish Mishnah. Again, this is the first major written collection of Jewish oral tradition. Oral traditions. Uh, some some call it the Oral Torah. Um, in the Mishnah, and again, this is something from ancient Jewish sources. Um, they identified six different categories that include what we would call binary, male or female, but also four other types of genders, or if you want to say genders, if you want to say uh, sexual identities uh, or sexualities, uh, however terminology you want to use, the, 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 the terminology they used was gender. I understand for some people, um, Gender is something very different from sexuality. 
uh, but I'm just going to be quoting from them, okay, for the, for the purposes of this podcast. So uh, the six categories of human gender identified um, from these ancient Jewish sources and from the Jewish Mishnah um, are, well, zakar, which would be male. That's right. That's expected. And uh, nekeva is the term for female. So we have male and female, right? But it doesn't stop there. There's also androgynous. Now, this is someone who has both male and female sexual characteristics. And there, and there are like 149 different references in the Mishnah and in the Talmud um, to someone who is androgynous. Okay. And also uh, 350 references, even more, twice as many, right, in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. So uh, there's also a tum-tum. This is a person whose sexual characteristics are indeterminate or they're obscured. Um, that would be, a hundred, we have 181 references in the Mishnah and the Talmud, 335 in classical Midrash Jewish law codes. Um, so that's three. No, that's four. That's four. Uh, the fourth, sorry, right? One, two, three, four. Yes, okay, that's four. <laughs> the fifth one is Elanit, um, a person who is identified as female at birth but develops male characteristics at puberty and is infertile. 80 references in the Mishnah and the Talmud, 40 in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. Um, and then we have Saris. Um, this is the sixth one. A person who is identified as male at birth but develops female characteristics at puberty and is lacking a penis. Now, a Saris can be naturally a Saris, Saris Hama, or become one through human intervention, Saris Adam. Right? This would be... Uh, I think this would be comparable to the eunuch that Jesus talks about. Those that are born eunuchs, those, those that are made eunuchs, and those that become or choose to become eunuchs for the kingdom. So 156 references in the Mishnah and the Talmud, 379 in classical Midrash and Jewish law codes. Um, now, you can find a much deeper uh, discussion of that. Um, there's a guy named Rabbi Elliot Kukla, K-U-K-L-A, and he uh, published something called Six Terms for Gender Diversity in Classical Jewish Texts. Um, in 2006, there's a PDF linked to that article in my article on Patheos about the six genders, according to the Talmud. So you can check that out there. Um, but another source, so this is not the only person, uh, a guy named Patrick uh, Boulier has an article called Six Sexes and Gender Expression. And he found that ancient Jewish texts, including the Mishnah, the Talmud, and the classic Midrash, offered, again, a surprising perspective on human gender and sexuality. And quoting from him, um, he says, the collective body of Jewish religious law derived from the Torah recognizes six or seven, depending on where you look, sexual identity categories, male, seris, androgynous, tum-tum, elonit, and female. And there's two types of seris. So it's male, seris one, seris two, androgynous, tum-tum, elonit, and female. Now, continuing to, continuing to quote him, he says, these non-binary categories weren't considered exotic or disastrous with Midrashim, associating them at Adam, Abraham, and Sarah, as well as a Midrash giving what sounds like a trans identity for Isaac. I'm still quoting. Finally, two helicot illustrate a rabbinic awareness that gender expression follows local custom, meaning it's socially constructed. The rabbinic halakhic uh, and, the, and the, 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 what I'm sorry, I should have defined my terms. The halakhic is the, is the collective body of Jewish religious law derived from the Torah. Okay. 
So in that collective body of religious law, the halakhic, the rabbinic and midrashic traditions uh, were not liberal in the modern sense in regard to these issues, but it does, they do provide an impetus for a Jewishly rooted mind opening with regard to sex and gender. So in other words, it gives us the opportunity. So in other words, I guess to be, to rephrase it, no, those people at that time were not, you know, uh, gender affirming, non-binary affirming, uh, gay affirming people. That, that That's not the way they saw things. However, they at least acknowledged that they could identify that some people exhibited one of these six different types of sexual identities and that they existed, that it was real, that it was human, and it wasn't imagined. And this should give us the opportunity to recognize that we also then, given a few thousand years uh, distance with science uh, mixed in, we should be able to also kind of say, well, yeah, that is true. And, and we know a lot more now about sexuality and identity and gender and uh, these kinds of things. Um, by the way, there's also a link to that article as well on the same post if you're curious about that. So again, the, the Jewish law was historically based on the assumption of a gender duality, male and female. But the fundamental Mishnahs indicate that this duality was not um, seen through a, the gendered exemptions of what we find in some of the commandments. So the, the fact is, throughout these ancient Jewish texts, uh, during the time these texts were being were written, during the time period where these, these ideas were being uh, discussed and evaluated, there have been numerous references to people who did not fall into a male-female binary category. That's the main thing I want to point out. And, and this required, because this was undeniable, the rabbis at the time had to focus their attention on acknowledging that there were those who did not fit into that convenient category, the binary you know, ways of thinking. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of other things we can look into on this. Um, you know, the ways they thought about things were very different um, than we might have, than we might think they were, right? Um, so, again, according to rabbinic semiotic to the to the rabbinic semiotic system again i'm quoting um the these signs or their lack would suggest gender uncertainty since a male body should indeed produce a beard or a female body should develop breasts etc but when in in situations where that did not happen um then they would say well this person isn't isn't the the binary male and it isn't the binary female and so it's something else there's we have to create another category right that's where Sarah's comes from um, or eunuchs. And again, this is what Jesus talks about. We're going we're gonna to follow this uh, train of thought later when we get into the New Testament scriptures. So, um, you know, uh, the, the main thing is, hopefully by recognizing this and realizing this, um, that there there is more than just the binary. And again, Jewish rabbis, reached a point where they could no longer deny that that was the case. Now, what we want to do is we want to ignore all that. We want to pretend all of that doesn't exist. We want to just only look at Genesis and say, well, you know, 
when Genesis was written, they thought there was only male and female. And we can acknowledge, yeah, that's right. When, when Genesis was written, they assumed there was only male and female. That's true. But later on, like with many other things in scripture, people learned and they grew and they changed their mind and they advanced and they progressed. And that's what, that's what really all of the things I'm talking about that we see in the, in the Talmud and in the Midrash and all these other, and the Mishnahs, um, that's what that's showing us. That's, that's what that is demonstrating. That yes, at one point, when Genesis was written, there was the assumption of a binary male and female. Over time, that changed. Um, and so then it's ridiculous now for us in 2020, as I'm recording this, 2023, for us to be sitting uh, around and saying, no, 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 let's erase all of that. Let's just go back to this super primitive way of thinking. You know, whoever wrote Genesis, they were sitting down, you know, who knows where, in a tent somewhere in the middle of the desert. Um, and And this was their idea of what God was like, and this was the idea of what sexuality was like and what gender was like. And so let's, let's just forget all of this. Let's just erase our brains and ignore everything. La, 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 put our fingers in our ears, and then just pretend, no, 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 let's go back to this original stupidity, this original ignorance. That's really, to me, what it is. Sorry, I'm not holding back. It's, it's the insistence on a return to ignorance. Not innocence. But ignorance, really, it's 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 an intentional foolishness, and I think it's just a bad idea. Um. So, the main thing too I want to pull out is that you know according to those Jewish sources, those ancient Jewish sources, there were six different types of sexual identity or gender identity. Um, and what's fascinating is if we turn over to science and we look at the scientific data, we'll find that human beings, based on genetics and biological research, that human beings are also classified into six different sexual identities or gender types. Um, now, again, Christians don't like this, but it's true. Um, there's an article in Scientific American called Sex Redefined. The idea of two sexes is overly simplistic. And in that article, we learned that biologists now know there is a much larger spectrum than just male or female. And this is based on research. This is based on looking at um, human, you know, physiology, human biology, um, human genetics, that, that it's, it's no longer accurate to speak of only a binary male or female. So um, in the article, there's a, a clinical geneticist named Paul James. And he was shocked to discover that one of his patients, a 46-year-old pregnant woman, was on the chromosomal scale male. I'm going to quote from the article. He says, her body was built of cells from two individuals, probably from twin embryos that had merged in her own mother's womb. And there was more. One set of cells carried two X chromosomes, the complement that typically makes a person female. The other had an X and a Y. Halfway through her fifth decade and pregnant with her third child, the woman learned for the first time that a large part of her body was chromosomally male. That's kind of science fiction material for someone who just came in for an amniocentesis, he says, close quote. So um, 
I also have a, a fascinating quote from a molecular biologist um, who also studies biochemistry and endocrinology. And, and he says biological sex, again, based on what he's done, his research that he's done, biological sex is a spectrum. We should all know that XX is a girl and XY is a boy, he says, right? Wrong. There are XY people who have ovaries and give birth, and there are XX people who have male bodies and functional sperm. These are usually written off as abnormalities, and while some do have medical issues, he says, many do not, as when the XY woman gives birth. So not everything fits into a binary male or female box, he says, unless we make those boxes a bit bigger. Uh, I'm just going to keep quoting him here. He says, on the scientific side, there are many things that can cause different biological and genetic variations ranging from XXY, XYY, Y, X, XX with translocation, XY with deletion, and hormonal variations like androgen insensitivity, estrodial failure, and disruptors like dioxins. Now, I'm not a scientist. I don't understand what most of that meant, but he does. <laughs> and what he's saying is that, uh, as, well, I'm just going to keep reading. He says, if you're a scientist, you want to categorize everything to make it easy to understand them, right? So you take all these different sorts of people and you plot them on a graph. To do so, you need to take all the differences in genetics, responses to hormones, effectiveness of signaling pathways, various sizes of AVPV, that's uh, something I can't pronounce, and give everything a number and add them all up. And he says, when you do that, you end up with a graph of male and female, which looks um, like side-by-side -side mountain ranges and a spectrum of color ranging from dark blue on the left to light pink on the right. In other words, he says, it's a spectrum. Simply put, there are functional females who can do all the usual female things like gestate babies, but they respond to this one endocrine disruptor in a male way. Geneticists have a shorthand for these sorts of people, male two and female two, which essentially means there are, there are, that creates four biological sexes, male one, male two, female one, female two. But he says it doesn't end there because we still have XY people who just ate babies and XX people with penises and ovaries. So now that's two more categories, intersex one and intersex two, because all of these people respond differently uh, genetically. So there is more than just XX and XY. There is more than just a male-female binary. That is proven by biological science. It just is. Um, so again, there's this debate raging, right? We see sound clips of this all the time, right? Politicians, you know, grilling scientists and geneticists and people and, and psychologists and doctors and saying, what is a female? Can you define female to me? What is a man? What is a, what is a woman? And then getting all upset when those people can't just simply define it in a binary way because they want them to define it in a binary way. And then they get frustrated and angry and upset when they can't. But the reason that they can't is because there is no binary. So it is very difficult to say, what is a woman? Well, I can't really say what a woman is without also explaining what all these other categories are that also might physically appear like a woman and in some ways um, biologically um, you know, have ovaries or testes or things like that, but yet not behave like a woman or, or behave like a woman but have male traits and characteristics or even parts. So it boils down to the same thing. According to ancient Jewish sources, there are six different sexualities, six different you know, types uh, of gender or sexual types. 
And biological science says the same thing, that there are six. And that's not, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> They're both right. They're both onto something. And so, um, you know, many Christians will say, yes, but Keith, the Bible says, right? Genesis 127, God created man in his own image, and, uh, and then he created them male and female. Well, okay, and so that, that's usually taken to mean, therefore, there's only a binary. There's only male, and male is one thing. There's only female, and female is one thing. Um, and that's some kind of proof. But again, in the same chapter of Genesis, it also says God created day and night. And we know that day is not one thing. Day is sunrise. Day is high noon, right? Day is sunset. There's a spectrum of, of a range of light, heat, and intensity when we talk about day or when we talk about night. So that even day and night is not a binary, and neither is male or female. There is a spectrum. And we know it's a spectrum from biology and science, and we know it's a spectrum from ancient Jewish sources. We only don't know it if we ignore science and we ignore ancient Jewish sources and we insist upon uh, an imposed ignorance. We insist upon, no, let's just pretend that none of that is real. And I want to also say, um, you know, some people want to say that, well, people who are intersex, people that are born biologically, physically, you know, with like, they appear female, but they have a penis and testes, or they appear male, but they have a vagina and ovaries. Um, that those are birth defects. You know, this is very rare, right? But um, but scientists would say that intersex is a natural byproduct. In fact, it's called, it's defined by geneticists as normal bimodal distribution. Normal. It's called normal. <laughs> it's a normal, normal, normal thing. Very normal. Uh, intersex people are perfectly normal as a result of nature. So there's no scientific rationale for medically or culturally referring, or forcing people into this male-female binary category because it's just not reality. So um, the estimates are that around 1,900 people are born intersex every day on planet Earth. Every day, 1,900 people. Now, that number sounds big, right? But, but I can make that number sound small. I can say that, well, that's only 1.7% of the global population. That sounds like a small number. 1.7%, not even a full 2% um, is, is intersex. That sounds really minor. So, Keith, you know, what are you making a big deal about this? Well, if you look at the global population, 1.7% um, of the global population is 156 million people. 156 million people, my friends, is more people than currently um, live in Russia. So take the entire, every single human being living in Russia right now, which is only 143 million people, it's more than that. Are you telling me that Russia, all the people living in Russia are insignificant? They don't mean anything? Well, of course they do, right? That's, that is a lot of people. And so, Again, it's just the reality. People are born who are sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes intersex, sometimes something else, right, that we can't find a word for. Um, but all of us, here's what I can say. However we identify, however we were born, 
whether it's physical or whether it's um, a sexual preference. These are things about ourselves that are normal. And, and humans are just straight. Humans are queer. Humans are bi. Humans are trans. Humans are intersex. But here's the deal. We're all humans. All of us are human beings. All of us are made in the image of God. Frankly, to me, this is no different than having a conversation about race. Now, you know, we feel like in some ways we've moved beyond having this conversation about race, but but we all know the truth is we're not beyond that because we're still wrestling with and struggling with questions of racial um, equality, right? That not everybody is created equal. Now we are, the truth is we are all equal, but we've, we've constructed societies where equality is not experienced as reality for everybody. And we're doing the same thing on the sexual scale, on the, the sexual scale, on the sexual spectrum. Um, we want to say that the majority of people, well, because the majority of people are male or female, they're binary, then they get to be the ones with all the rights. They get to be the ones who make the rules. Everybody else just needs to tough it up or live with it too bad. Um, but this isn't, not only is this not right, if we're going to call ourselves followers of Jesus, this is not Christ-like. It is not Christ-like to treat other people, right, um, who are not like you as second-class citizens or as non-citizens, as non-human, to define their existence away, to say, no, you're not gay. You can't be trans. You can't be intersex because God said in the Bible, you don't exist, therefore you don't exist. And this is just your sinful choice. This is your rebellion to God. This is your an abomination to God. Now, this is not Christ-like, my friends. It is not Christ-like for us to, to treat people who are not like us who are not born like us, whether physically or sexually or otherwise, to, to treat them as if they don't matter and they don't count and they're not as much a human being made in the image of God as you and I are. And again, I've said this before, God, God so loves you know, every gay, lesbian, queer, trans, straight, intersex person on earth because we're all the children of God. And we're called to love one another that way too. That's what it means, right? Um, so yeah, I, I hope this is helpful. Hopefully this gets us thinking, if nothing else, um, about this question. I want to say too, I was talking to someone the other day about this. Um, you know, for me, when it was a big deal for me to get over this whole question of, is it okay to be gay? Is it a sin to be gay? Because I also believe for the longest time that what the Bible says, and it took me a long time to work this out till I realized that it was okay to be gay and that the Bible actually didn't say some of the things that I thought it said. And um, quite often, even when it did say it, when I read the words in my English translation, if I looked at the meaning behind the, the Hebrew or Greek words, it didn't say what my English translation of the Bible said it said. And so anyway, it took me a long time to turn the corner on this, to change my mind about this. Um, so I understand why for some people this is really difficult. It was difficult for me for a while. Um, but I think if we, I think we need to be able to do this. We need to be able to think things through. We need to be honest about the fact that our Bible is a mess. 
that the Bible has been, it's not even the Bible's fault. I shouldn't even blame the Bible. Um, people have used the Bible as a weapon, as a tool. It has been weaponized against certain types of people, people that are not in the majority, people who are not in power, people who don't represent the power structures, right? And this has been going on since Constantine. And it's still going on. And it makes me angry, makes me upset. It should make you angry. Even if you were an evangelical Christian, you should be upset that someone has taken what the Hebrew and Greek Old and New Testament scriptures originally said, added words, changed words, edited words, um, retranslated things in a wrong way, right? To communicate something that is not there for the purpose of, um, for the purpose of exploiting and diminishing and oppressing other human beings. That should, that should bother you. That should make you angry, right? Especially if you're like, oh, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I believe everything in the Bible. Well, do you? Or do you believe, or do you hold on to beliefs that really were added later by people who had an agenda? And over and over again, this is what I see. When I look at these sort of, uh, I know, again, I've covered this in other episodes where I talked about how your Bible is lying to you and all these kind of things, right? Um, that, yes, th this is the, the case, that we have English translations that people have manipulated. And, and, hey, big surprise, most of the time when we look at these kinds of changes that are made, it's for the purpose of um, giving women authority over women, giving men authority over women giving uh, straight people authority over gay people, giving, and, and, and it's been used this way too, to give white people authority over people of color, to justify slavery, to justify misogyny, to justify violence between husband and wife, all sorts of things. And this is not a good thing. We shouldn't be, we should never say, well, this is okay, or this is God's will, because it really isn't. And to me, it's a, it should be a big deal to people to recognize, like we said on the previous episode, there is no Hebrew word for husband or wife or marriage. Those three words don't exist in the Hebrew language, and they, therefore they shouldn't be showing up in your Bible. But they do. So why is that? Isn't that false? Isn't that fake? Isn't that... Isn't that uh, profaning the scriptures to add words in there and add meaning in there that doesn't belong there to change the meaning, the intended communicating, you know, the, the, the message that it's intended to communicate? Well, I would say yes. And I think anybody that wants to pretend that they care about the Bible would also have to say yes, that they should care about that. And in this episode, talking about the fact that there was the recognition in the ancient Jewish world that there were six different types of sexuality or gender identity, more than just male or female. We have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge that biological science, well, lo and behold, look at that, also identifies six different types. Wow. Now, again, that should mean something. That's not a coincidence. That's, that's real. <laughs> that's... That's ancient Jewish sources and biological science agreeing on something very significant. 
that we have to take seriously. I think we need to take it very seriously. So I'm going to stop here. I think I think this is enough for a single episode. Um, we will jump into the next episode. I want to talk a little bit more about what the Bible has to say about same-sex relationships. Um, and in the series going forward, I, I'll just give you a little bit of a heads up of kind of like what I'm thinking about discussing. Uh, I, I do want to talk about that. So the way the Bible talks about same-sex relationships. Um, I want to talk about eunuchs because Jesus says some pretty astounding things about eunuchs. So we'll look at that. Um, and then I think if nothing else, we should have a conversation. We should do an episode where we just really explore the question of whether or not the church, whether Christians and Christian leaders and you know pastors and uh, denominations and things like this, should should religious organizations, should institutional religions, should they have the right to define marriage? And yes or no? And if yes, why? And if no, why? And so we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. Um, yeah, so thank you for listening. Um, again, I, I thank you all of you who have said you love Second Cup with Keith. Thank you for your, your reviews. Thank you for your ratings. Thank you for sharing uh, episodes with your friends. Uh, would love to hear your feedback on, on either this episode or any of my previous episodes, suggestions for future episodes. Um, you know, let me know. Uh, I just, I'd love to get the, the feedback from you as my listener, what you think about the podcast and where we should go next after I finish this series, because I am going to do this series. Um, I also want to say too, I have a, um, I do have a brand new book that just came out called Sola Deus, What If God Is All of Us. It's the second book in what I hope is going to be a trilogy. Uh, the first one, the first book being Sola Mysterium, um, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And, um, and the third book, uh, I guess in the next week or a few months, <laughs> I might start writing that, the third book to wrap that one up that will be called Sola Mesmera. And that's dealing with, uh, how everything is hypnosis and that'll be fun. Uh, in the meantime too, um, I have some online courses available and you can find those at bk2sq1.com. Um, or you can find information about them too. If you just go to my blog on pathoskeithgiles.com and I usually have links at the bottom of my articles, uh, linking to my most recent, you know, upcoming online courses. Uh, square one is coming up again. So I have another square one, you know, cohort starting again. Um, it'll be starting July 24th. 2023 as I'm recording this. So in a couple of weeks. And if you, if you're someone that is deconstructing your faith, you kind of would like to find some community and some connection with other people going through the same things you are, uh, a safe space for you to be exactly where you're at, whether you believe in God or you don't believe in God, whether you don't know what you believe, uh, no judgment. Everyone's allowed to be, you know, at different points in the curve. We're not, we're not coming together because we're all at the same point because we all believe the same things we're coming together because we don't know what we believe and what we're, what we all have in common is we're doubting uh, what we were taught uh, about our, the faith that we were born into or that we were handed. And it's a 12 week, it's an online course, but it's also a community. There's a live zoom call and we just get together and talk and process things together. And it's been wonderful. I've been doing it now for about four years uh, it's amazing to see, to meet so many people. It's amazing to see people get healed uh, and find their way forward through what, you know, deconstruction can be quite painful, disorienting, um, isolating, and confusing. 
And so it's been wonderful to give some people the tools that they need to figure out on their own what their personal unique deconstruction and reconstruction journey looks like. I don't know what that is. I can't tell anybody what that is. I'm sort of trying to figure out my own. Um, but in square one, people can, you know, again, get the resources, get the tools, find some new practices um, of their own. Again, they, they pick and choose what works for them. I just lay out sort of a, a smorgasbord, a buffet of options ahead of them, in front of them. And, and they're allowed, everyone, allowed, you are allowed in square one to, um, you know, to do what works for you, to do what makes sense for you and to sort of map out your journey from where you are now, wherever that is, to where you're going to go next. Um, so anyway, if you're curious about square one, you can message me about that. We do have some, um, we do offer um, what we call sponsored seats. Those are free and uh, to a handful of people. So at least two or three people every round get, get to take it for free if they financially cannot afford it. Um, otherwise, it's you're, you're allowed to pay it in monthly installments um, to be a part of it. But again, if the if the cost is too much, please let me know. I usually offer it standard at like 75% discount. Um, that's the baseline. So everybody pays 75%. And then if that's still too much, we can have a conversation about a, a sponsored seat. Either way, um, if you're looking for something like that, I, I highly recommend Square One. And I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But we're going to wrap it up today. So thank you so much for listening to Second Cup with Keith. Um, we'll see you next time. I look forward to seeing you and hearing from you over on all the social channels, social media channels. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube, and of course on my blog on pathios at keithchiles.com. You guys take care. God bless. And we'll talk again later.